I am Abby Walker. For those of you who don't know me, I grew up here at Countryside, and I'm a covenant pastor, and I'm excited to share one of my favorite passages with you today. But before I get to my favorite passage, I want to share one of my favorite books. Are there any C.S. Lewis fans in the room? Okay, there are some. I grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia and read those to my kids when they were younger and we've watched the videos and um, I've read some of his other works as well. And I love that in his works of fiction, he's able to help us understand some different things about God and theology. And so one book that I wanted to mention to you today is called The Great Divorce. And The Great Divorce is a fictional story, just like the Chronicles of Narnia, and the title comes from um, him trying to set the premise for the divorce between heaven and hell. And he paints this picture of people, after they die, wind up in a town where there's a bus stop. And they're waiting to get on the bus. They don't quite understand where the bus is taking them, but eventually they get on the bus, and the bus takes them to the foothills of heaven. So if you imagine, there are all of these people who are arriving at the foothills of heaven, and there's three characters that I want to talk about. The first one is a theologian. And the theologian arrives and looks around and suddenly realizes that heaven is is a place without questions. And as a theologian, he spent his entire life wondering with curiosity about the big things of the world, wondering how how God set things up, wondering what God might be like, wondering how God is working, wondering about all of these things that are unknown. And when he arrives in heaven, he realizes it's the place of truth, that there are no questions. There are only answers here. And then there's an artist who spent her entire life with this very special eye of being able to see a glimmer of heaven in the world around her. She could see these pieces, these sparkles, and would paint them on canvases to show to others, to help them to see these glimpses of heaven. But as she's standing in the foothills of heaven, she looks around and realizes everyone else can see everything that she can see. That there's no reason to paint the beauty because they exist in the beauty. And then there's this businessman, and the businessman arrives at the foothills of heaven and sees all of these amazing things, all of these things that would be worth a lot of money if he could find a way to get them and take them down to hell and sell them. And so you've got these three very different characters who have spent their entire lives building these identities, living a story about who they are and what they do and how they exist and operate in the world. And when they arrive in heaven, they realize that to remain in heaven, they have to let go of the most central pieces of their identity. Something so core to who they are will have to die in order to remain in the presence of God. And so I want us to look at verse 4 of chapter 5 of John. We're going to be looking in the NIV, so if you don't have the NIV, you can look it up on your phone or there's one in front of you. And 
I would like you to find chapter 5, verse 4 in your Bibles today. Can anybody find it? It's not there. There's no verse 4 of chapter 5. Now, that's because in our most ancient Greek manuscripts that we have, um, it's not a part of any of them. It was a later addition by scribes who were translating, trying to help explain what is happening in this passage. But verse 4 was not actually um, a, an accurate account of what is in the original Greek manuscripts. So in our NIV translation, there is no verse 4. That's a fun trick to play on your kids and grandkids later. So let's start with verse 1 today. It says that sometime later, Jesus went to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now they're in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath and so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is the fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus had been traveling, and he arrives back in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, just north of the temple, is a pool called Bethesda. And this pool has a lot of history to it, both Jewish and pagan um, background, is that this pool has some healing uh, tendencies to it. That if you were a Jew, you believed that an angel might come and stir the water, and the pagans believed that some kind of spirit might come and stir the water. And that's actually what that addition of verse 4 includes by the scribes. They were trying to explain what, what this pool, what is happening here. And so there are just a ton of people that arrive at this pool waiting to be healed. And you have to be the first one in the water when the water is stirred in order to receive the healing. And so you have people who are blind, people who are lame, people, people who are paralyzed. You have people who have been waiting their entire lives for healing who are lying by the water. And this man, it tells us, was paralyzed for 38 years. 
This was probably most of his life. He spent day and night lying by this pool because he has no one to transport him back and forth. He's lying there. We don't have any clues to family or friends. He has no one to help him in the water, he says. And so he's built an entire life around lying by the pool. His whole life story is waiting to be healed. And excuse after excuse comes out of his mouth about why he can't get well. He knew no other way of living, and because of this, he probably had very little understanding of obligation or discipline or responsibility. He depended entirely on charity for survival. It's the life he had come to know and the only life he knew how to live. His day and night were consumed by waiting for healing. This was his story. He created a life where all he could do is wait for his condition to change. And like many of us, whether we know it or not, he probably preferred this life of dysfunction because he knew it. It was comfortable. He could operate within it. And similarly, we all have our own story with a little bit of dysfunction, whether we want to admit it or not. We all have these habits and patterns and dependencies, maybe not lying by a mythical pool for some kind of healing, but there are plenty of things we have an excuse to say, that's just who I am. That's just the way I am, take it or leave it. To do anything else To become aware, to do anything different would require a disruption of our entire lives. And we're just not willing to make that level of change. To change the way that we spend our time, to change our habits and our behaviors, to change the way we think, to change the way we feel, to change the way that we treat others, to change the things that we are passionate about, to change our entire identity just seems outside of the realm of possibility. Jesus looked at this man who had been lying by the pool waiting to be healed for 38 years and he asked him, do you want to get well? It seems like a ridiculous question. Of course he wants to get well. Of course he wants to get up and walk. It seems like Jesus doesn't even need to ask these words, but he still does. Because these are also the words that we need asked of us. For this man to get well, it means he can't lie by the pool for one more minute. It means he can't depend on charity for survival. It means that he can no longer be a victim in his story. It means the entire way he operates and lives and spends his days can no longer be. The thing he dreamed of is fulfilled, and now he'll need a new dream. Everything must change. And this is why most of us don't choose to get well. So why don't we get well? I have three things today for you that have to change in order for us to get well. The first is we have to have a change of head. And I use head because I needed three H's. So mind might have worked a little bit better, but you'll remember the H's, right? So we have to change our head. We have to change the way we think. 
The first thing that the paralyzed man said when Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well was, I have no one to help me in the pool. He began with an excuse. Because if you get well, you have to change what happens in your head. You have to change the story that you tell yourself about who you are and what you do and what you long for. If I change what's going on in my head, I actually have work that I have to do. I resonate with the story of the theologian in the foothills of heaven, standing in the beauty and the truth and realizing there's no reason for my questions here. I've spent my whole life asking questions. I've spent my whole life being curious. I've spent my whole life wondering what if, what, how could, what is this? And if everything is fixed and solved and all I have are answers, then a core piece of who I am is suddenly gone. The theologian in C.S. Lewis's story was unable to live in an existence of answers. He was unable to live in the presence of truth, which is what he was always searching for. He had to let that go, and he couldn't do it. So he chose to go back to hell. If the only way I know how to exist and operate takes the core of who I am, I suddenly don't know who I am or what I do anymore. We all have conformed to a story, and we follow that script pretty closely. There are things we do and things we don't. I think about my sister who's creative and an artist, and she's always asked to paint and design the VBS sets. And if Amy were to ever ask me, you better believe I would laugh at her because there's no way you want to see what I can draw. But when we take this even a step deeper, beneath our habits and behaviors, when we go below the surface and unearth what we bury beneath ourselves, the things that we don't share or show to anyone else, those things that we guard, you find all of our pain and our temptations, our wounds, and our troubles, our heartbreaks, and our grief. In all of those places just under the surface, we also have constructed our own story about who we are. And that's where we've created these stories of being unlovable, unforgivable, unimportant, and unbelonging. Our stories are also constructed around these ideas. If we want to get well, we can no longer live in alignment with that old story because it's no longer true anymore. To get well is to align our story with the story of God instead of our own broken stories. C.S. Lewis wrote, if we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. When we let go of our excuses and all the reasons we've created around why we can't or won't or don't get well, we have to learn how to let go of all of those souvenirs of anything aside from God. We don't get to carry those wounds anymore. We don't get to walk with a limp. 
We don't get to have an excuse about why we are the way we are because we suddenly become the people of God and open our hands to find evidence for a new story. We shift from finding excuses to looking for evidence. We have to look for the story of heaven taking root all around us. The New Testament refers to the kingdom of God, and the Gospel of Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. Scripture tells us that this is what is taking root in our world, that it's like a leaven in a bread, in a loaf of, or in, sorry, in dough before it gets to bread, that is growing and rising. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is all around us, but we have to begin to look for evidence of it. And I guarantee you, when you start to look for evidence of God at work in our world, you'll be surprised by how mighty and how big his work is. If we want to get well, we don't get to live by our old broken stories, but we start to live in the story of God that is taking root all around us. And if we let go of our old stories— That means letting go of the things that we created our identity around, all of our preferences and our excuses, and even our comfort. Because if we want to get well, we have to change our hearts. And this gets really uncomfortable. When Jesus asks the paralytic if he wants to get well, he says, there's no one to take me to the water when it is stirred. He's waiting for a force outside of himself, some kind of power, something else that can stir the water. And this was part of what he believed, either whether he was a pagan or a Jew, that something else supernatural had to come and stir the water. And so he's just waiting, waiting for something or someone to stir it. In C.S. Lewis's story, if you were a painter who painted the glimpses of heaven and you see that everyone else can see it too, then all of a sudden your craft has no purpose. You feel like you have no purpose. Instead of realizing the joy and just existing in the beauty of God's creation. And so the artist decided to leave the foothills of heaven and go back to hell. I think about all of the ways that we are automatically attracted to the bad things happening around us. That's what we click on. That's what we, we get our conversations fired up about. We're, we're always talking about everything going wrong in the world around us. The division, the dysfunction, all of that gets our attention. But change experts have discovered in order to change, in order for us to get well— We have to focus on the good that's taking place in the change. When we decide to eat healthy, the more we say we're starving and everything tastes bad, the less likely we are to stick with it. But if we continue to repeat over and over again, I'm getting healthy, I'm choosing what's good for my body, the more likely we are to stick with a healthy change. Mother Teresa said, a clean heart can see God, speak to God, and can see the love of God in others. So not only do we need to pay attention and find evidence of God's kingdom around us, but we also have to be intentional about changing our hearts, about changing the way that we feel, 
about making sure that we are people who are cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. Just imagine the evidence of the kingdom that other people would find if all of us in this room began to actually get intentional about practicing kindness and patience and love and joy and peace and generosity and faithfulness and self-control. If we embodied these fruit of the Spirit in our everyday lives, the world would see evidence of the kingdom. But those fruit don't just appear. Fruit doesn't just grow on trees. You actually have to work the ground and the soil and take care of the tree in order for that fruit to grow. So we have to do the work of changing our heart in order to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. And when the Spirit is alive and within us, we are living out the kingdom mission around us. But just changing the way that you eat healthy foods doesn't always go the way that we want it to. Because we are so in love with our sugars and our processed things, that's what our palate has acclimated to. In the same way, our heart clings to bitterness and resentment and gluttony and rage. All of those things are comfortable to us. They give us some energy and some feist to our lives. But those are the things we have to let go of in order to begin cultivating the fruit. If you want to get well, you have to get really uncomfortable and hold a mirror up to your life every day and ask yourself, am I embodying these fruits? Are these fruits evident in my life? The fruits that I am am bearing, are they fruits of heaven or do they look more like souvenirs of hell? Why wouldn't we want to get well? In order to get well, we must change our head, we must change our heart, and finally, we must change our hope. When Jesus asked the man by the pool if he wanted to get well, he said, while I'm trying to get in the water, someone else always gets there first. Immediately, he gives his excuse, he's depending on something outside of himself, and then there's the problem that someone else always gets there first. He automatically looks to history, to the past. What has happened before? How did it go before? And a lot of us do that as well. We look at our lives from before. How did things used to be? What did I used to enjoy? What did I used to like? And we want to go back to that, or we hope to recreate it in the future. So often we allow the experiences of what was to hold us captive instead of allowing God to set us free for what's next. We look back on the way that God worked before, on the way that God acted in our lives, and we want to get back to that because we see those moments and how good they were. But when we only look backward, we don't allow for God to lead us forward. The businessman was trying to take a piece of fruit from a tree and smuggle it back down to hell in order to sell it and make money. He would rather make money off the fruit than stay in heaven and enjoy the pleasures of heaven. I recently was reading a book and the author was talking about how she had talked to a child psychologist who said that one of the best things you can do in parenting is be enchanted 
by the things that enchant your child. So if your child is enjoying basketball, get excited about basketball. If your children likes act, if your child likes acting, get excited about the plays they're interested in. And so how do we as parents learn to be enchanted by the things that enchant our children? And I've been taking that a step further. I have a sticky note in my office that says, how am I enchanted by the things that enchant God? To be enchanted is to be delightfully pleased and charmed by something. N.T. Wright wrote, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. The Spirit of God lives within us, empowering us to colonize earth with the life of heaven. Can you imagine right now when we pay attention and we look for evidence of God's kingdom and we shift to embracing and embodying the fruit of the Spirit and we pray and we live out our desire for God's kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven? I guarantee you, when we start to live this way, evidence of the kingdom will be all around us. There will always be evidence of things falling apart, sure, of reasons to despair. But we are people who pray for God's kingdom, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That our God, we believe, did not set up this world and disappear but in John 1, it says that God came to earth to be with us, to live among us, and that God breathed his spirit in our lungs to animate our lives so that we would become evidence of heaven on earth. So that we might be evidence of heaven on earth. Our God is always working on the side of resurrection. God is always leading us forward toward greater freedom, not taking us back to slavery. God is working to restore and renew and rewrite our stories even today. These are the things that God is enchanted by. How might we learn to be enchanted by them as well? Jesus told the paralyzed man, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. No more blaming your problems on someone or something else. Stop living as a victim in your story. Stop sinning. Stop creating hell on earth. The man is healed by Jesus' words spoken to him. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. So when Jesus asks us this question, do you want to get well? What is your response? Do you want to get well? What will you have to change in order to get well? And do you believe it will be worth it? You don't have to wait for someone else to carry you. You don't have to wait for something to stir the waters. You don't miss the opportunity if someone else gets there first. 
if you want to get well, take a look at what your story is aligned with. What defines your story and your identity? And begin praying more regularly, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And carefully consider what changes you will have to make in your head and your heart and in your hope in order to see this happen. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the gift of your son who gives us our hope. God, we thank you that through his gift, we are able to make the changes that we need to make. God, help us to be the evidence of heaven here on earth. God, help us to colonize this earth with your kingdom and your will. God, we confess all of the ways that we have failed to do this. We confess all of the things that we hold on to, our wounds and our pain, our sin, our passion, where we found our purpose. God, we give all of that to you today asking that our hearts and our heads and our hope might be changed so that we can begin to find evidence and be evidence for your kingdom on earth. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.